The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. I invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Yes, I know that we just read from Philippians chapter 1, and that is because we are starting a new series today into the book of Philippians, but we're going to spend about half of our time in 2 Timothy Three. Hopefully that'll make a little bit more sense as to why we're doing that in just a few moments. But we're launching out into this new series simply entitled Joy. Joy. We're going we're gonna to walk through the book of Philippians, and, and all I want to do this morning is answer one simple question. Why? Like even as I announced, we're doing a new series through Philippians and titled Why. Like you may be asking why. You may be asking it in a number of ways. Jonathan, why are we going to do this? Why should I care? Why do we even study Scripture this way? Going through books of the Bible. And why are we going to go through the book of Philippians right now? I mean, isn't that a book that's all about joy? You just said, Jonathan, that the title of the series is Joy. And that probably leaves you asking, Jonathan, are you even aware of the world that we live in right now? Like, do you watch the news? There's not a whole lot to be joyful about. Why are we going through a book of the Bible at all? And specifically, why one about joy? All I want to do this morning is try to answer that question. Why? And I want to tackle it from both angles that I just mentioned. First, why are we going through a book of the Bible? That's where we're going to spend half of our time. That's why we're in 2 Timothy 3. Why are we going through a book of the Bible? This is the, this is the primary way that I approach preaching and teaching here at Shades. Why? Some of you have heard me talk about this before. Some of you are new. You've never heard about it. We could all, including myself, use a refresher. Why do we do it this way? And second, why Philippians? Like, why should you care what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Macedonian church of Philippi 2,000 years ago. What relevance could that possibly have for living in America in 2019? Oh, shades. Philippians is more relevant to your life than any news app that you opened this morning. Like, like, It is more relevant than any 24-hour news cycle on television that you tune into. Those 24-hour news cycles, they can't refresh fast enough to be fresher than this word. Philippians and the joy that it proclaims is more relevant to you than you could possibly imagine. I want us to see why. Let's see why together. So that's the plan. First, here we go. Why do we preach through books of the Bible at Shades? It's not always this way. We don't do that exclusively. Uh, last Christmas, we went through a series on vocation. Vocation is your, your job, or if you're a stay-at-home mom, or if you're a student, it's your calling, whatever God has called you to in life right now that occupies you. So we went through that topic or subject matter. We don't always go through books of the Bible, but this is the primary way we pursue preaching and teaching here. I, I meet with college students all the time that love to uh, reference their journey at Shades according to where we were in the Gospel of John. Why, why, do, why, do, why do we do that this way? I've got three reasons for you, which I take all of them from 2 Timothy chapter 3. Number one, 
The whole of Scripture has been given to us by God for a purpose. The whole, not parts, not pieces, not the quotable, Instagrammable passages. The whole of Scripture has been given to us by God for a purpose. What purpose? Look at 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 16. All Scripture. All. I had a prof that used to say, all means all, and that's all all means. All Scripture. And, and realize here that when Paul writes this to his young disciple Timothy, for him, when he says all Scripture, he is primarily referencing the Old Testament. The specific portion of our Bible that most of us would deem the most irrelevant to our lives. And Paul says, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The man or woman of God may be equipped, complete, excuse me, may be complete and equipped for every good work. Apostle Paul writes these instructions to his younger disciple Timothy, and Timothy is trying to lead a problematic church in the city of Ephesus right now. And Paul wants Timothy to know, Timothy, you're not left up to your own wits and your own experience, which you don't have much of, Timothy. You're not left up to that, to your own resources to try and direct this church in Ephesus. You have been given everything that you need to train these people, to equip them, to, to live the life that God has saved them for. Timothy, you've been given everything. What have you been given? Scripture. And all of it, Timothy, all of it from start to finish is what your people need. This is what Paul says, the church, us, this is what we need. Timothy, give the people the book. Not your ideas, not your opinions, or your life experience. This is very comforting for me. I became your pastor when I was 28 years old. If I was depending upon life experience to offer any of you anything, I would have never said a word. Timothy, give the people the book. That's what Paul says in the very next verse. Look at it in chapter 4 and verse 1. Ignore the chapter break right there. I hate chapter breaks. This is a continuous flow of thought. And so Paul's saying, because Scripture is profitable for teaching and equipping, he says this, Therefore, I charge you, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing. Okay. Um, I don't know how it worked in your house growing up, but in my house growing up and in my house now, the more names that a parent uses to call the child, the more serious the situation. This is what Paul is doing here. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. What's the charge? Preach the word. Not your word, Timothy. Not, not your word, Jonathan. God's word. Preach it. Keruso. It's the Greek behind it. it. It was a word used in Greek to describe what a town crier did. A, a herald who would get a message from a magistrate. They would go out into the public square and you know, say, hear ye, hear ye situation. They would proclaim, not their word, but the message that they had been given to deliver. They heralded it. They proclaimed it. They preached it. Weak. After weak shades, this is what I aim to do. Not to proclaim my word to you, 
but to herald the word, the message that I've been given. I aim to open up this word and expose what's here. That's called expository preaching. If you've been here for any time, you've heard me use that word before. Exposit. You can, you can hear the word expose there. To, to exposit is to expose, to explain, to open, unfold, to display. Expository preaching doesn't come up with what it wants to say, formulate that, and then search the Bible to see if we can pick and choose a couple of verses to support what I already decided to say. Expository preaching starts with the text and says, what does the text say? What does God say? Because that's the word that the people need to hear. This is the type of preaching that I do even when we're not walking through a book. So the series we did last Advent on vocation, I didn't go, okay, what are like the three top tips I can give them for honoring God within their vocation. Like preaching is not a Christian version of BuzzFeed. Here's the latest top 10 list. You know, I, I said, what texts, where does God in his word address our vocation primarily? Okay, what did those say? That's the message that needs to be exposed, explained, open, and unfolded. Because when, when this word is opened and exposited, it puts God, not the preacher, but God in all of his glory on display before us because this book is about God. That's how the book starts. In the beginning, not you, not me, God. That's how the book ends. God. That's at the heart and the center of the book. God taking on flesh, Jesus Christ. It's this book is about him. If anyone opens this book and expounds it to you, centered around you, something's off. And unfortunately, that is a lot of preaching. A lot of preaching is man-centered preaching. Are you familiar with the Copernican Revolution? Everybody remember this from history class? Everybody used to think that the earth was the center of the universe. And Copernicus was like, actually did some calculations. The sun's at the center. And it blew everybody's mind that we were not at the center of the universe. It's called the Copernican Revolution in science. We need a Copernican Revolution in theology. We're not at the center. God is. And so when we open this book that's about Him and proclaim this word, it puts His glory on display. Is that not exactly what we saw last week as we walked through 2 Corinthians chapter 4? 2 Corinthians 4, we proclaim not ourselves. No, we proclaim God. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. And what happens when we do that, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, that through that proclamation, God shines a light into the darkness of people's hearts so that they see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's through the word proclaimed that not the preacher is powerful, but that God powerfully works to show you his glory. Romans 10, 17 says the exact same thing. Faith, beholding and believing in Jesus. That's what faith is. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Not through the word of Jonathan. 
Faith doesn't come through the word that's popular to preach right now, that's guaranteed to attract big crowds. I get magazines that tell me what's popular to preach right now so that it will attract big crowds. There's one problem with that. I already have a book that tells me what I'm supposed to preach. Faith doesn't come from preaching what's popular. It comes through the word of Christ. Shades, I don't care about preaching what's popular. I care about being faithful to hold up Jesus in the word so that by the spirit we behold and believe in him. We get more. My goal is to be like the prophet Micaiah. You familiar with Micaiah? Not Micah. Micaiah. You should read about Micaiah in 2 Chronicles 18 sometimes. See, even the Old Testament. It's worth something. You should read about Micaiah. Uh, king Ahab of the kingdom of Israel wanted to go to war. He wanted the southern king, Jehoshaphat, to go with him, which is just a funny name to say. And Jehoshaphat's like, let's hear from the prophets. And they hear from all these prophets, and all the prophets say, go to war. And Jehoshaphat's like, okay, they all agree. Is there anybody with a dissenting opinion? And Ahab's like, well, there's this guy named Micaiah, and he always speaks evil against me. And Jehoshaphat's like, bring him. So a messenger goes to get Micaiah and says to him, Micaiah, all of the prophets have given the king a favorable message. That's what's popular to preach right now. You come and do the same. This is his response. Second Chronicles 18 and verse 13. Micaiah said, as the Lord lives... What my God says, that I will speak. Shades, this is the word that my God has said, that I will speak. Nothing else. This is one of the reasons that we walk through books of the Bible because the whole of this word has been given to us for a purpose. All of it breathed out by God to reveal his glory for our good. It's all profitable. Therefore, it's all to be proclaimed, preached. Second reason. Second reason I primarily preach through books of the Bible. The whole of Scripture takes us into difficult places. The whole of Scripture, when we go through it systematically, we're taken to places we otherwise might not naturally go. Scripture takes us into difficult places. In other words, the Bible talks about difficult things. There are passages that speak to truths we would rather avoid talking about. And I'm just going to be honest, it would be super easy as a pastor to just avoid all the difficult stuff. Stick to that that's comfortable. Non-controversial. It would be a lot easier for me, probably be easier for you. This is what all of us as people naturally prefer. That's precisely the next thing Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Look at verse, I mean chapter 4, look at verse 3. He says, Timothy, right after he told him to preach the word, he says, for a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That doesn't sound like Paul is prescribing what's popular to preach. Sounds like he's doing the opposite. He says, Timothy, people have their own uh, passions, itches that they they like to be scratched. We'd all prefer to just hang out in the passages we enjoy and ride our theological hobby horses. 
it would be easy for me to do that. Only preach my favorite passages? It'd be like taking batting practice. I just lob it up here. Home run sermon. After home run sermon, bring them on. Just big, fat, juicy, easy gospel passages. Skip all the curveball passages. But Shades, when my time as your pastor comes to a close, I want to be able to say to you what Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 and verse 27. I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. This is why I preach through books of the Bible, because it forces us to go to difficult places that we otherwise would not choose to go. Places that God has promised are breathed out by Him and profitable. It's profitable truth too. All He has given us in His Word is profitable. This is all gold. So let's be rich through all of it, even when the digging gets difficult. Third reason. Third reason that I primarily preach through books of the Bible is the whole of Scripture leads you to get Jesus and not Jonathan. I hope this point is patently obvious from what we've already talked about, but I believe this. The whole of Scripture when we go through it, the whole of it, it leads you to get Jesus and not Jonathan or whoever is preaching. My, my goal in preaching is not to get on a personal soapbox each week and pontificate about how I think you should live your life. This is not Jonathan's opinion hour. If, if, it, if it becomes that, you need to leave. This is not Jonathan's opinion hour. There's no authority there. My goal is actually to minimize me as much as possible and to maximize Christ. I want 2 Corinthians 4 or 5 to be true in my life for what I proclaim is not myself, but Jesus Christ as Lord. This is what Paul instructs Timothy to do. Look in the very next verse, uh, 2 Timothy 4 and verse 5. As for you, as for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your ministry, Timothy, which Paul describes as the work of an evangelist. What does an evangelist do? They point people to Jesus. Timothy, point people to Jesus by preaching the word. The way, shades the way, that I guard against proclaiming Jonathan and focus on proclaiming Christ is by proclaiming this word. We already said it. God, Jesus, is at the center of this word. It all points to him. If you want me to get really honest about Philippians that we're about to go into, Philippians is not ultimately a book about joy. Philippians is ultimately a book about Jesus and the joy that comes from knowing center on this word so that we get Jesus and not a preacher or personality. You root your faith in a preacher or a personality, then your faith will fall when that preacher or personality does. And it happens all the time. I, I, I want to preach from this book so that your faith is not rooted in me, but in God's word. Your authority isn't me, it's, it's God's word.
So my goal is to exposit this word, expose, explain its meaning by the grace of God and the power of His Spirit. And to show it to you. I don't just want to say things to you each week. I want to show them to you in this word. Expositors don't just say. They show. Like if you can't see what I'm saying in the word, something's wrong. I hope everything I've said so far is rooted in 2 Timothy 3 and 4. I just want to say it. I want to show it so your confidence is rooted in this word, so your authority is this word. And I don't want you to just see it, but celebrate it. My goal in preaching is not just to exposit. I want to preach. This is why I got both words here. Expository preaching. My goal isn't just to exposit, to explain something. Oh, there you go. It's explained. Try to make it plain. We want to preach it, proclaim it, rejoice over it, glory in it, so that the glory of God shines forth through the Word. I want to worship over the Word. I want to invite you to see the truth as we exposit it, see it with me, and then celebrate it with me. This is why preaching is not something separate from worship. It's a part of worship. It's not like we worship, we pause, we preach, and then we resume worship here in just a little bit. No, preaching is a part of worship. Preaching is not something you come to listen to me do. It's something we all participate in. We are all looking into the Word to see the glory of God revealed and then to celebrate it. Just as much as you join Joseph or John Mark or Mackenzie or whoever's leading worship, just as much as you join them in song, I'm inviting you to join me in celebrating the glory of God that we behold in the Word. Expository preaching is not ultimately aimed at explaining. It's aimed at worshiping. Our aim in expositing this Word is to encounter the Word, Jesus, so that we worship Him. So, This is why we primarily walk through books of the Bible because this whole book has been given to us by God, even the difficult parts, all of it to point us to Jesus so that we get Him. But, why are we, in 2019, specifically about to walk through Paul's letter to the Philippians? This is our second why we need to answer this morning. Why Philippians? What, what? Why study a letter seemingly about joy at a time when we seemingly have very little to rejoice in? The Philippians could have asked the same question to Paul. Like, Paul, why, why, why are you writing to us about joy? We don't have very much to rejoice in currently. And by the way, neither do you, Paul. Paul's in prison when he writes this, most likely in Rome. Paul's in prison when he writes this. He's he's got rival preachers there in Rome trying to undercut his authority. I mean, Paul's got difficulties inside the church coming against him, and he's got difficulties from outside the church coming against him. And Philippi can look at him and say, we got that too, Paul. We, We got the same issues going on. Not a whole lot to rejoice in. Philippi, for the most part, was a healthy church, but even the healthiest of churches got their issues, Shades. I don't know if anyone knows, but we got issues. Because I got issues, 
This is another thing a prof of mine used to say. I got issues, you got issues, all God's children got issues. Even the healthiest of churches have things going on. Philippi does too. More than that, their health is being threatened by false teaching that's trying to creep into the church. We'll encounter that eventually in chapter 3. They don't just have difficulties within the church. They have difficulties coming on them from outside of the church as well. They, they faced pressure and persecution from their surrounding Roman culture. And this, all of this, 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 this pressure, this persecution from the surrounding Roman culture, that wasn't new for the Philippian Christians. Their church was born amidst opposition. You can actually, I, I encourage you to do this this week. You can go back to Acts chapter 16 and read about the founding of this church. If, if you've read Acts chapter 16 before, you probably have not forgotten it. It is hard to forget. I'll, I'll summarize the highlights. In Acts chapter 16, Paul, three of his companions, get a vision that they're supposed to go to Macedonia. That's modern-day northern Greece, where Philippi is. So they head there, and Philippi is the first place they preach the gospel. It's the first time the gospel is going to Europe. They come into Philippi, they preach the gospel, and, and, and you got to understand, Philippi, just to give you the setting of Philippi, Philippi is a smaller city, but it's still really important. It's, it's along what's called the Via Ignatia, that's the Ignatian Way, it's like a super highway built for Roman soldiers to make their way from Italy all the way as far as Asia. And so Philippi is on that, that road and, and, and Philippi, therefore, even though it's smaller, still is an important city, and Philippi boasts of its Roman heritage. How many of you, like, from world history, sorry, I'm making you dip into history a couple of times this morning. How many of you from world history remember, when, uh, remember the story of Julius Caesar being assassinated? Anybody? Ides of March? Yeah, a couple of people. Philippi is the place where Mark Antony and Octavian who were pro-Julius Caesar, this is the place where they tracked down uh, the conspirators. Cassius, Brutus. Everybody remembers et tu, Brute, whatever. Yeah, that. You too, Brutus, my friend. Stabbing me, running me through. So Mark, Anthony, and Octavian, they tracked down Brutus, Cassius, and their army, and they collide at Philippi. And Brutus and Cassius are defeated there, and so the victors mark their success by making Philippi a Roman colony. They, they settle it with veteran Roman soldiers. The city itself was made to be like a little Rome. Its inhabitants were Roman citizens. They wore traditional Roman dress. They spoke Latin. They, uh, they embraced uh, Rome's approach to religion which was pluralistic and syncretistic pluralistic. You can believe whatever you want to believe as long as it doesn't say that's the only thing that's right. Everybody's equally right. You can believe what, that doesn't sound familiar at all. You can believe whatever you want to believe, syncretistic. We'll just kind of mix it all up and take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and put it all in a blender and you get what you want. They embrace Rome's sexual morality. Religion and sexual morality go together throughout the history of the world. Because whatever you believe about whoever's in charge of your body will determine what you believe about sexual ethics. This is the way it works. They, um, they embraced their identity as, as Rome. They wanted to be a little Rome. Like, like even the city's layout and architecture mimicked Mother Rome. There was a 
working class that spoke Greek of like construction workers and, and merchants. But overwhelmingly, this city was in love with its Romanness. I mean, if they'd have had a Lee Greenwood, they would have totally hired him to write, I'm proud to be a Roman citizen. It's the best joke I got this morning, y'all. That's it. There it was. Swing and a miss. And here's Paul. He shows up in Acts 16 sharing the gospel. And people across the social spectrum come to faith. First, a woman named Lydia. She's from that Greek-speaking working class, a, a merchant, seller of purple. Then, perhaps slave girl who Paul cast a demon out of. We don't know for certain. Scripture doesn't tell us explicitly that she came to faith. I'm just kind of going out on a limb and saying that after you have a demon cast out of you, there's a fairly good chance that she came to faith. Her owners, her, excuse me, her owners were not happy about the fact that Paul cast this demon out of her because the demon had given her, in some sense, some powers of divination, fortune-telling. And when the demon was exercised, they, their, their chance of profit making money off of her was gone. So they drag Paul and Silas, his companion, before the magistrates. They get them thrown into jail, which doesn't bother Paul and Silas. They just start a prison ministry. They sang praises all throughout the night. And God responded by literally shaking the place with an earthquake that breaks open all the cell doors and breaks off all the prisoners' bonds. But nobody goes anywhere because they are captivated by the power of the gospel. And even the jailer at that point is captured himself by the power of the gospel, and the Roman soldier who was guarding them comes to faith in the Lord. This, this is how this socially mixed church, I mean, we got a merchant woman, potentially a slave girl, a Roman soldier so far, people that never mixed are bound together by the blood of Christ. This is how this socially mixed church was born amidst adversity and opposition. And here we are now at this letter, 10 years later. And this church and its founder, Paul, are both still facing adversity and opposition. I already told you by the time Paul writes this letter, he finds himself in chains in Rome, I think. And this motley crew of a church in Philippi, they find themselves still opposed in their own little Rome. Paul's persecuted in Rome. They're persecuted in their little room. I mean, just imagine being a part of this church. They've spent a decade watching their founder face opposition and persecution. They've spent a decade living in a culture hostile to their faith, a culture that they were once proud to be a part of that now puts pressure on them to once again conform to Roman norms. Can anybody relate? Is this as irrelevant as we think it is? It's feeling highly relevant to me. Like, like, does anyone in here know what it's like to be a part of a culture? Perhaps a culture that you even sing songs about being proud to be a part of. 
anybody know what it's like to be a part of a culture like that, which now applies daily pressure to get you to conform to its norms? Especially with regards to religion and sexuality. The average American's approach to religion and sexuality is so Roman, pluralistic. I'll do what's good for me. You do what's good for you. Anything goes as long as it doesn't say that anybody else is in the wrong. Daily pressure to get you to conform to culture's norms. And Paul writes this letter to say, don't conform. Don't conform, Philippi. Don't conform, Shades. This letter is a letter of encouragement. Paul writes to encourage us to live lives set apart, distinct, different from the culture that surrounds us. That's why he's writing. It's all over the letter. Philippians 1 and verse 27. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Distinct. Different. Set apart. How about chapter 2? Philippians 2 and verse 15. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, Paul says we are to shine like stars in the world. Distinct. Different. Set apart. How about chapter 3? Philippians 3 and verse 20, Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven. Live in a way that prizes your citizenship in the kingdom of God above all other citizenships, Philippi. In a world and a culture that says Roman citizenship is supreme and there lies your ultimate allegiance, no. You're distinct. You are different. Philippi, shades don't conform to culture that is applying pressure to you with regards to religion, sexuality, and citizenship, politics. Don't conform. Be set apart, distinct, different. That's great, Paul. How? How are we to be different? Paul has a one-word answer for us. Anybody got a guess? Joy. Joy makes you different. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 25, Paul says everything that he does, he does for the Philippians' progress of joy in the faith. How about chapter 2? Philippians 2 and verse 18, Paul calls the Philippians to rejoice even in suffering. How about chapter 3? Philippians 3 and verse 1, he doesn't just call them, but he commands them. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice. In the Lord. And just in case you don't think he means it, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Shades, those might be a fourth of Paul's references to joy in this short epistle. And I think we get his point. Paul calls us to be a people distinct and different from our culture. Our culture that tries to find joy in various religions, tries to find joy in sexuality and identity, tries to find joy in politics and the promises of politicians, but it all fails and fades. 
And Paul calls us to be distinct and different from that culture. And what makes us different is a joy that doesn't fail, a joy that doesn't fade, because it is a joy that is not flippant or flimsy. It's a joy that's not flippant. It's, 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 not, it, 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 it's not a joy that says, when I say flippant, what I mean is it's not a joy that, that says just keep smiling no matter what. Like, let's pretend that nothing hard is going on. No, Paul in this letter is honest about his own circumstances. I mean, he's not just in jail. Before chapter 1 is over, we're going to find that he's potentially on death row. And it is while staring down death that Paul is somehow still able to have a deep and abiding joy through tears and pain. That's different in this world. That's distinct in a world where joy is dependent upon circumstances. In a world where all joy is removed by death. To see a man who can stare death in the face and call it gain. That's verse 21 of chapter 1. Something different's going on there. Paul isn't flippant about his circumstances, nor is he flippant about the Philippian circumstances. He knows they're being pressured and persecuted. He's not calling them to pretend like they're not. He's calling them to a joy that pressure and persecution cannot destroy because it is not a flimsy joy. It is a firm foundation. It's not flippant, and it's not flimsy. It's a firm foundation. That, that's different in this world. That's distinct shades. We, we currently live in a, in a cultural climate where everybody is looking for a firm foundation that will provide their life with some kind of stability and joy. And they can't find it. Everybody around us is freaking out all the time like the world is ending. And they're not happy about it. They're outraged. We live in a culture of outrage where everybody gets triggered about everything all the time. And all too often, Christians are right there with them. Declaring it's the end of the world and embracing a culture of outrage. But, but do you know, do you know what will be distinct and different in a culture outraged because everything seems to be falling apart? What will be different is a rock-solid foundation that gives a joy that cannot be shaken. A joy that's not flippant, pretending like nothing's wrong. A joy that's not flimsy. Those are the only two kinds of joy the world knows. I can either pretend like everything's okay and paste a smile on, or I can search for a joy in things that keep crashing around me. It's the only kind of joy the world knows. But we embrace a joy that cannot be shaken, a joy that is not flippant, pretending like nothing's wrong, a joy that's not flimsy, though all hell breaks loose, it still proves strong. Paul writes Philippians that we might have this joy that will make us shine like stars amidst a crooked and perverse generation, living lives that display the worth of the gospel. Line after line, paragraph after paragraph is filled with rock-solid 
truths meant to give you rock-solid joy in a world where nothing feels rock-solid. Even the lines with which the book opens, his simple greeting, told you we'd get there. Just look at verses 1 and 2. Very quickly. This is where we'll end. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the rock-solid truth here that's meant to give us joy? Paul's writing to the Philippians. They know he's in prison. Yet he's going to write about his own joy. How, how, how can he have joy? Because, look at how he begins the letter. Even though it may look like he is a servant, literally a slave of Rome, he's really a servant, a slave of Christ Jesus. This is how he introduces himself. Not Paul, prisoner, in chains, slave of Rome. No, Paul and Timothy. Timothy's with him, even though Paul's the one writing this letter. Paul and Timothy, servants, slaves of Christ Jesus. Like, I don't care that you've heard that I'm, I'm locked up, Philippi. I belong to Christ. Even in chains, I belong to him, and I'm serving him. He's the reason I'm in chains. Like, I've had experiences, Philippi, in your city. That he can loose the chains and open the door anytime he wants. I'm here, not because of Rome, but because this is where he has me. He's in charge. He's in control. I'm still serving him. I'm chained to him. And so I have reason to rejoice. I belong to Christ and nothing can change that. Not even chains. And Paul says, that's not just a truth for me, Philippi. That's also true for you. Look at what he says next. He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. You catch that? Like, like, Yes, you're still at Philippi. Yes, your culture is opposing you. Yes, it's hard for you, just like prison is hard for me. But just like I'm a servant of Christ, you are a saint in Christ. Philippians, you have been, you have been saved by Jesus Christ, made a saint, hagios, holy one, a citizen of the holy kingdom of God. You're saints, shades. Made holy because you've been united to Christ. You're saints, citizens of a kingdom. Philippi, I know you've prided yourself in being citizens of Rome, but you're citizens of a superior kingdom now. You belong to Christ, Philippi. And even though you're still in that city that's opposing you, nothing can change the fact that you're a saint and you belong to Jesus. Likewise, shades, as we live in the midst of our own modern Philippi, Paul wants us to know we belong to Jesus. We're saints, citizens of His kingdom, and nothing can change that. So just like Philippi, we can have joy even in the midst of our culture. We can have joy that's not flippant or flimsy, but rock solid because we have a rock solid foundation, Jesus. And why do we have this rock solid foundation of Jesus? No matter what happens, Christ is ours and we are his and he gives us joy. How do, why, why do we have that? Because God has graciously given us the gift of Jesus freely. That's how Paul's greeting concludes. Look at it. Grace to you and peace 
from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why can you have joy amidst a joyless culture that pressures and persecutes you? Paul says, because you have peace when nobody else has peace. You have a peace from God. Later he'll call it a peace that passes all understanding. You have a peace from God who has graciously made you his own and promised to bring you all the way home. That's why we can have joy shades no matter what's going on. We know the end. The world's not falling apart. It's in the hands of the one who created it and he is still in control. My confidence, my trust, my joy lies there. God has graciously made us his own, promises to bring us all the way home. And Shades, this letter is a part of God fulfilling that promise. That he's promised to bring you safely all the way home. This letter is part of him fulfilling that promise. Notice this, let me show you that. Notice that when Paul says grace and peace to you, he's not speaking in the past tense. He's not just trying to remind Philippi about the grace and the peace that they received through faith in Jesus because of his death and his resurrection. Like you received grace and peace back then when you believed. Most of us think that grace is something God showed toward us in the past through the death and resurrection of Christ. And we experienced it when we came to faith in him and he pardoned our our sin. That's all true, but on the cross, shades, Jesus did not just purchase pardon for our sin. He also purchased power for our present and the promise of our future. God's grace toward you isn't just past. It's also present. It's also future. Grace is God's free gift, yes, of pardoning your sin, but also of empowering you by the Holy Spirit through every moment of your life to bring you all the way home to full and forever joy. Paul says it explicitly, Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Every need you've got, For every step along the way, Philippi, Jesus purchased it all. The riches of His grace are stored up in Christ. And day by day, God is pouring it out to you. Trust Him. Live. Walk by faith. Not just that He pardoned your sin in the past, but He's providing power right now in the present. And His promise is that He'll provide it till He brings you all the way home. And Paul says... Philippi, he's doing that right now through this letter. Grace to you. This letter, it's grace to you. God's grace is coming to you through this letter. Through this letter, I'm going to lay out truth after truth after truth to give you peace in the midst of pressure and persecution. God's grace is coming to you through this letter. He's going to use these words to empower you to live lives of joy in Jesus. So we preach this Jesus for your joy. That's what Paul instructs me to do in these opening verses. Did you catch that? How he calls out overseers and deacons specifically? Overseers, or we might call them elders, pastors. He calls out church leadership specifically as if to say, you church leaders, these truths I'm about to unfold, 
teach these truths, preach these truths that I'm about to set before you. This is God's grace to you so that you may know more and more of Jesus to whom you belong and he may give you joy. So preach this book. Shades, this is why we go through books of Scripture. Because God's grace flows to us through God's Word so that we encounter the Word, Jesus, and worship Him, find joy in Him. This is why we're going through Philippians in 2019. To encounter Jesus. Find joy in Him. Joy that's not flippant or flimsy, but foundational, full, and free. Joy that a frightened and angry world is longing to see. Joy that we have been set apart to show. Joy in Jesus. Amen.